Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got good, really bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. Jim, we'll get to the very grim, difficult, infuriating, so many different adjectives. Uh, news out of Buffalo, New York, and that horrific mass shooting. Uh, let's start a little bit on the lighter side, though, with our uh, uh, good martini. And uh, it once again goes to what we've been talking about in the midterm elections. It was just a couple of days ago, last week, actually, where uh, it looked like, despite all the uh, you know lighting their hair on fire that the, that the liberals had about the new Georgia voting laws, that early voting is way up. And so that is a pretty strong testament, Jim, that uh, all of the worst-case scenario stuff that the left was uh, feeding the media and convincing Major League Baseball and everything uh, was not warranted. Now we've got different information that's also uh, very good. This is from the Associated Press. The great vote-by-mail wave appears to be receding just as quickly as it arrived. After tens of millions of people in the United States opted for mail ballots during the pandemic election of 2020, voters in early primary states are returning in droves to in-person voting this year. A step back in mail balloting was expected given easing concerns about COVID-19, but some election officials and voting experts had predicted that far more voters would seek out the convenience of mail voting once they experienced it. They said not to uh, assume anything yet since we're, A, still pretty early in the primary season, and B, uh, you know, turnout's heavier for general elections, so you don't know exactly how folks will choose to uh, exercise their their right to vote later on this year. But, uh, Jim, this is good for a number of reasons. First of all, as you know, Jimmy Carter and Jim Baker were saying almost 20 years ago now, uh, absentee ballot is the most susceptible to fraud. It's uh, you know, hard to know exactly. Um, what the level is, but uh, when you have people showing up in person, whether it's early voting or on the day of the election, the process is still the same. Uh, most places, hopefully, you got to present an ID. But uh, either way, the in-person balloting is uh, definitely more secure, and I think we're going to hopefully get election results that people trust. And so if this trend continues, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, and for any listeners out there who are like, wait a minute, Jim and Greg said high use of absentee ballots and early voting in Georgia is good news. Now it's less popular in other states, and you're saying that's good news, too. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, Greg, if I can speak, at least from, from where I sit, if, you know, I'm not vehemently opposed to early voting in all circumstances. If you're going to be traveling on Election Day or you have some good reason to not want to go out to the polls, that's fine. And unsurprisingly, during the 2020 uh, COVID-19 pandemic, Americans were much more concerned about going to a polling place and standing online and being in uh, close quarters to other folks than they are in you know spring of 2022 and hopefully from here on out. Uh, if you want to use it, go ahead and use it. I do think there are you run a certain risk with it, and I think we got a very good example of this, or maybe a potential good example of this in uh, Pennsylvania, where John Fetterman, the likely, if extremely likely, Democratic Senate nominee, had a stroke this weekend. Judging by the video he posted in the statement, he's on the mend. Looks like he's going to be fine. Uh, also, by the way, you know, uh, Maryland Senator Chris Van Pollen had a stroke uh, this weekend or you know, went was checked into a hospital. So if you're feeling if you're not feeling right, check yourself out. Obviously, it seems like a lot, a lot of strokes going around lately. But, um, you know, the, the election is on Tuesday. Thankfully, Fetterman looks like he's going to make a full recovery and he's going to be fine. But, you know, if you I think there's a neighborhood of like close to 900,000 people in Pennsylvania have already requested a mail in ballot. They may or may not. Uh, have filled it out by now. I think they're available. They can turn them in up until like eight o'clock on Tuesday, at the end of election day. 
But you know, if you, you you fill in your ballot early enough, and in I think it was in Minnesota, they could get to like five or six weeks ahead of election day. You never know when there's going to be some opposition research drop, some scandal, some late breaking issue that maybe makes you feel differently about the candidates. So my attitude would be vote as close to election day as possible. Uh, you never want to be in a circumstance where you vote and all of a sudden something comes out and you're like, oh, I don't like that candidate. I wish I hadn't voted for the guy because once your ballot is in there, I don't believe you can change it, at least not in right. most jurisdictions. So. Um, is good that this option is available for those who want it, but I think it is rather, in, you know, a rather strong indicator that uh, by and large, unless people have some significant health issue like COVID-19 going on or know they're going to have unusual travel plans or I guess bad weather if you have one of those, uh, you know, really early in the year primaries, uh, you know, people generally prefer to vote on election day. And I think it's a, a good sign that the hype around this uh, represented really unique circumstances in 2020 and did not necessarily represent this permanent shift in how Americans chose to vote. And I think this is good for, you know, it is tougher to cheat with in-person voting than it is with mail ballots. No, that's exactly right. And uh, we didn't get a full breakdown of those Georgia numbers. And uh, based on what we're seeing in this story, uh, there's a significant chance that uh, a big number of that big jump in uh, early voting was in person. We don't know that for a fact, but uh, given what we're seeing in the Associated Press report, that that's certainly possible. So the two the two good martinis might not be uh, as contradicting as you might think. And I agree with you on early voting. Uh, I think as many people should vote on Election Day uh, as possible. Uh, just to uh, you know, have the uh, most accurate and, and most up-to-date uh, opinions possible as you head into the polls. Remember Cal Cunningham in North Carolina? Uh, the early voting had started when uh, all of his uh, infidelities and so forth came pouring out, and Tom Tillis barely won that, uh, that, that re-election effort. So that was a very important situation there. So I don't like early voting at all. I'd like to make it as small as possible. That's not where the trend is going right now. But if you have to have people voting before Election Day, in-person is definitely better uh, than absentee if possible. So if you want to sleep in on Election Day because you've voted early, you can do that on your MyPillow and your MyPillow sheets and so many other great products from MyPillow. Uh, The bed sheets in this new BOGO extravaganza. Buy one set, get another one free. Uh, starting as low as $59.98. The Elegance My Pillows as low as $49.98. And the new Roll and Go Anywhere My Pillows as low as $29.98. Now, your Roll and Go Anywhere My Pillow, you can use it on your couch, your recliner, in your car, wherever you like. It's versatile enough to take it with you on vacation or anywhere else you're going. They're available in multiple colors and patterns, they're machine washable and dryable. And these pillows come with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. It is a buy one, get one extravaganza at MyPillow.com slash martini. Bed sheets and MyPillows are just the tip of the iceberg, though. Find the full list of BOGO offers by visiting MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. Stock up with buy one, get one free savings today and get Mike's book free with any purchase. MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. MyPillow.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to the bad martini now. And this is the dominant story of the day, was the dominant story of the weekend. A horrific mass shooting at a a supermarket in a a black neighborhood in Buffalo, New York. Ten people dead, three people injured. An 18-year-old shooter is in custody. Uh, From what we're hearing from law enforcement, he traveled upwards of 200 miles to this specific location 
to kill people. Uh, walked in with the body armor and the whole deal. Uh, he had been flagged by local police in the past for uh, mental health evaluations. Somehow he was still able to do what he did. Uh, and of course, uh, in these uh, situations, you you look for motive and that sort of thing. There's this purported manifesto out, which um, people are trying to, to use to their own uh, political ad- advantage. Uh, he clearly had a strong disgusting racial motive for doing this and uh and and that is certainly worthy of a full discussion in in the bad martini as well but of course in the culture that we live in jim people are are jumping all over this for example here's uh dana bash over at cnn her opening question to house speaker nancy pelosi yesterday on state of the union the racist purported manifesto is based on the really repugnant white supremacist idea that people of color are replacing white people in the United States. And as you know, this isn't just a fringe theory on the corner of the internet. It's being pushed by right-wing media personalities and some political figures. What do you say to them? And do they share any responsibility in this attack? Pelosi made the rounds yesterday. She was also on This Week with George Stephanopoulos on ABC. And George Stephanopoulos was talking about uh, cracking down on big tech since this manifesto and other rantings of the uh, shooter were out there. And uh, here was what Pelosi said about that. How can we hold these social media companies accountable? You do have this free speech issue. Well, obviously you have to balance the free speech issues, but you also have to be able to, when you see a, 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 a prospect for violence and it doesn't just it's not just one thing it's communities of of similar thinking who gravitate toward each other that's what produced uh, uh, some other violence in our country as well and America is a great country our freedom is so important to us but that freedom also carries a, a public safety with it and we have to balance those Jim, what's your thoughts on the horrific details as we know them from this mass shooting and the reaction that we're seeing? I mean, Greg, you and I on this podcast numerous times over the 11 plus years we've been doing this, we, we talk about how often there's this just excruciatingly enraging pattern of, you know, people who knew the shooter, people who had encountered the shooter, um, see all the red flags they see all the warning signs and we keep being told in every conceivable public service announcement and statement from law enforcement and election officials if you see something say something and then time and time again people see something and they say something and then nothing happens and some of this at least you know a couple years back you could say people were seeing something and saying something to the wrong people a university administrator cannot uh, take away a person's guns or order them to be, you know, uh, detained and, and examined for mental health or something like that. Employers can't do this. They can bar someone from the premises, but if they come back with a gun, there's not much your office, your company's HR department can do about that. Uh, if you want someone, if you believe someone is a physical threat to others, the real entity that can respond to this appropriately is law enforcement. In fact, they're the only one. And I don't know whether they get these sorts of complaints all the time. I don't know whether uh, people blow them off. I don't know whether they, you know, someone goes quiet for a while and they take them off the watch list. They don't really worry about this sort of thing. Uh, But we saw it in the Aurora. We keep seeing this in shooting after shooting. Generally, there's a long paper trail of the perpetrators of these sorts of heinous crimes and attacks having a long history of making threats, 
and you know stating a desire to hurt or harm or kill others and things like that in this case it's this guy now you know i, I and it's a a really dreadfully predictable but also i think a, a symptomatic of why we don't part, part of the reasons we have not responded to this problem the way we should have is the instantaneous desire to turn it into a partisan cudgel uh, to go through that, and clearly we have the reaction to this guy, it, you know, the degree to which people are pouring over his manifesto. Going back to Columbine, there's been this extraordinary frustrating fact that you know, the world is full of angry young, generally it's angry young men, but every once in a while you'll find an angry young woman. And this sense of feeling like they don't matter, feeling like no one's listening to them, feeling like they have been shunned and ignored and mocked and not given the respect. And they're just so desperate to get it. They're gonna, I'm going to find a way to show it. I'm going to bring a gun to class, or I'm going to bring a gun to this place, and then the world will pay attention to me. And they do something utterly unspeakable. And then all of a sudden, there's this you know great, intense media attention. What could make this person do this? We have decided at that point, that person matters. At that point, we wonder what's going on inside their head. We're wondering what they think about these things. And clearly, there is a hunger on social media and probably among some politicians to say, aha, look, the gunmen believe this. This is how they're connected to the opposition party. And this is why the opposition party is bad. Rarely will you find it more uh, explicit than in the headline over at the Rolling Stone where they said, uh, the gunman was not an extremist, he was a mainstream Republican. Now, obviously, but if you bother to look through the manifesto, he's actually you know, deliberately explains why conservatism is a failure. It hasn't conservative. In fact, he denounces conservatives for not even recognizing that race exists. By the way, I think that's a compliment. That's from where I sit. That's the way the way everybody ought to be. Um, but you kind of look through all of this stuff and there's this hunger, this eagerness to say, aha, this shooting proves why Republicans are bad. And you know, there are plenty of folks on our side who can point to the baseball shooting uh, you know, by the former Bernie Sanders campaign volunteer and say, aha, this is why Democrats are bad. Now, it's not really you know, your Democratic neighbor, your Democratic friend, your Democratic cousin or family. They're not necessarily bad people. I hope they're not. I don't, I, you know, by and large, they aren't bad people. They just believe different things. And we on the right think their ideas about the world are wrong. But they're not all aspiring mass shooters. And the same goes for Republicans and conservatives. But there are some people who just want to believe that the people who disagree with them are just inherently evil. And oh, by the way, if you run around telling people that their opponents are inherently evil, what do you think you get? Well, probably more people who are contemplating taking a gun and shooting them because they've been described as this imminent threat to everyone and all that you hold dear. If you're looking for something actually good to read on this, uh, Joe Cunningham, not the congressman, but the writer over at Red State has been kind of talking, you know, he keeps coming back to the topic of America's young people, mental health, um, the effects of, of the quarantines and, and the pandemic and stuff. And he makes, I think I'm just going to quote two quick paragraphs here, because um, I think it really summarizes a lot in a much better way of thinking about this. He says, the problem isn't hate speech or social media in general. Those happen all the time. And while vile, they rarely lead to physical violence on the part of the racists using the speech. I realize that given the raw emotion of the moment, it's difficult to nuance policy wishes on such things, but it is important for us to understand what's going on. Our children, and by the way, despite being 18 years old, the supermarket shooter is still emotionally and socially a child, have turned to various social media platforms to find their community. And he puts that in quotes. 
in the great majority of these cases, it's harmless. It's just kids going online, going looking for acceptance. But in a growing number of cases, that need for acceptance is causing kids to do more and more things we would consider problematic for that acceptance. They're turning to sexual behavior, identity change, and worse to get that acceptance. And for children susceptible to mental illness, we can see what can happen. And that I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in those short sentences there, Greg. And I think ideally that would be the conversation we would be having having instead of aha see he's got a he's got a racist manifesto therefore it's the fault of republicans jim very well said by you and by joe uh there's just so many problems with our society right now and like he said and i think that's a really prescient point we're seeing all the signs of people desiring to find their place and instead of seeing that as a cry for help we're affirming it all which i think only makes it worse in a lot of these situations uh, jim there's one other thing I, I i want to get your thoughts on here in, in one part it's frustrating and another point it's understandable because the media will spend more attention on a story depending on what it thinks the narrative is here right so you have a lot of people more on the right saying well, where was all this attention when the guy who hated white people mowed down people in Waukesha or the motives of the Brooklyn subway shooter? And so part of you is like, guys, that's not the details here. I don't want to know about what aboutism here. This is a really ugly story. Let's focus on this. But at the same time, we never get to focus on the other story because the media won't talk about it. So how do we balance that? That, that story disappeared from the news cycle very quickly. And... You've probably heard very little about updates in the trials or any of the criminal proceedings or, or anything like that. Um, I, I think, look, you know, other, other than Radio America and National Review, a couple other institutions, the news media is broken. Um, I, I don't you know. It, first of all, the, the sheer number of people who go into journalism who want to tell people what to think, not what is happening, to provide, who want to provide um ideological guidance as opposed to you know the who what when where and why i think is a big pro is a big factor in this that you know when someone does something you know uh, the, the baseball shooter in uh you know in in northern virginia who tried to shoot down the, the gop softball team uh there were no broader lessons from this there was no uh you know sort of thing where we all have to be careful about what we say um, and you just recently in the Sarah Palin libel case, people today still believe that the shooter of Gabby Giffords out in uh, Arizona was driven by ideology, when in fact he believed that punctuation was part of a global conspiracy. The guy was just flat out nuts. Um, the sheer number of people who are absolutely convinced to this day the Pulse nightclub shooting was a result of anti-gay bigotry, when in fact the, the shooter committed himself to ISIS on the phone with the cops. Like, you know, there is this attitude of everything that happens has to be shoehorned into this very simple ideological narrative of our guys are good and your guys are bad. And so if the shooter is someone, if the shooter's ideology doesn't fit that, he either gets, you know, quickly disappears from the news cycle and there's no broader lessons. Or, you know, they quickly change to a different motive that is more ideologically comfortable for uh, certain voices in the media. Now, look, do I think that, you know, uh, the incendiary rhetoric can can set people off? Possibly. And that's one of the reasons you're not supposed to play with fire like this. I also would point out, though, that I don't trust any government authority to be a judge on this um, because they're, you know, that's how you end up with the, you know, Department of Homeland Security scanning social media. 
um, for things like this. I, I, in the end, crazy people do things because they're crazy. I don't think there's any way that we can look and say, oh, if I had written something differently or if somebody had you, if politicians had given a different speech, this act of violence wouldn't happen. There's this effort of blame shifting going on that I think is at the root of this because I, you know, 90% of this is um, inexcusable partisan axe grinding. And I think 10% of it is a ang- desire to find somebody else to blame that we're so angry over this and it seems so senseless that blaming the gunman doesn't seem like enough and we need to blame Tucker Carlson or somebody else to be the the other, you know, cultural, the, the cultural scapegoat in addition to the actual shooter. Very well said, Jim. Very well said. There are so many societal problems that are being exposed in these situations. And what are we going to get instead? A knee-jerk gun control debate again in Washington. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now, and uh, we need to lighten the mood a little bit here, and there's no one better for that than Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, Some of her sound bites uh, over the last uh, year and change have really boggled the mind, uh, especially her... uh, what we're doing every day and that time is now and you know that quote better than I do but uh, here is uh, her comments and I think this is actually scripted unless she's going off script once again here Uh, this was uh, the uh, Asian summit Uh, this time I was here in the United States and the uh, topic was climate change and uh, well she had a very repetitive theme in these comments that is especially true when it comes to the climate crisis which is why we will work together and continue to work together to address these issues, to tackle these challenges, and to work together as we continue to work operating from the new norms, rules, and agreements that we will convene to work together on to galvanize global action. I think she thinks they're going to work together, Jim. This reminds me a little bit of um, way back in 2004. Remember when George W. Bush got tired in that first debate with John Kerry and kind of lost his train of thought a couple of times on on Iraq policy, and he kept going back to, this is hard work. And yeah. uh, and Kamala Harris seems to be channeling that now, although uh, I think she just had her talking points and, and got lost as usual. I don't have it in front of me, Greg, but I'm always going to remember it is, it's hard work. We're working hard at, at the hard work. Right. Some people are hardly working. When they're, we're hard work, we're working hard. Yeah. Um, sometime, every now and then I feel sympathy for Vice President Harris, this is, you know, I, I think it's safe to say she was selected before she was ready. Um, the implosion of her campaign was not an accident. Uh, the theory or the idea of Kamala Harris is very appealing to many Democrats. And I think the reality is disappointing and does not live up to this image they have in their heads. But the other thing that's kind of baffling about this, Greg, is that it keeps happening, right? Like it's, it's one of those things where you would think after you've had a couple of these embarrassing moments where, you know, as people, the phrase that keeps coming back is the, the you know, grade school kid who's asked to give a book report on a book she hasn't read. Um, you end, That little girl was me, Greg. <laughs> um, the, you end up with a situation in which you think, you think she'd go out and she'd have like a XAO prepared remarks on every single one of them. And you think she would get better at speaking extemporaneously. And she'd have her anecdotes and she'd have her, you know, and instead it keeps turning into this hallmark card of, we have been waiting and the waiting that we have done for us is the ones that we are the one, you know, it's just going on. It's, it just turns into blather. And I, you kind of, I, I, everyone, most of the time, the audiences are pretty receptive. I don't know whether she has a communication staffer who says, Madam Vice President, you're doing it again. And then Harris yells at her and the communications director re- retires. I don't know if that's the reason for the churn or whatever it is. It doesn't seem to be getting better. 
And that's what's baffling. It's one thing to have a really bad, you know, habit as a speaker and you end up in a position, higher profile position than you expected. But, you know, we're, we're now head closing, closing in on two years in this of her in this office. And it doesn't seem to be getting any better, Greg. No, no. It just keeps happening time after time. But she might still be better at it than her boss. I don't know, which is. Uh... <laughs> All right. she's, she's not senile. We'll give her that. That's, you know. She's just really bad at her job. So the people who say we can't say something nice. Kamala Harris has all of her marbles. How about that? <laughs> oh, if that's our positive takeaway today, um, we're hurting. That's not a great start to the week. But, uh, Jim, we will pause there for today and uh, resume tomorrow. Talk to you then. Some days you can just tell it's a Monday. See you tomorrow, Greg. <laughs> no doubt. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you for subscribing to the podcast. If you haven't already, please do so and tell a friend. Uh, thank you also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Uh, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday, and please join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Project Veritas founder and CEO James O'Keefe joins me to discuss the new FBI whistleblower exposing the government's targeting of journalists it considers political opponents. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter show, O'Keefe also describes the horrifying FBI raid he endured. And I'll share my very personal thoughts on the truly disturbing abortion protests I witnessed this week. Don't miss it. Follow The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.